Well, I love it when we get together as a Christ Journey family, and whether you're joining us online today across the nation, around the world, or right in the area here within the house, I would like for all of us together, sometimes I do this, I want to do it right now, I want you to sit up straight, take a deep breath, and even at home, we're all going to say together, repeat after me, nothing is too hard for God. I love that. Now, one more time, and everybody, a little bit louder, okay? Turn it up to 11. Here we go. I'm going to say it first, then you say it. Ready? Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. Amen. Even the topic that we're dealing with today. You know, we've been dealing with some very tough topics in this series. Last fall, we sent out on social, and we invited people just to turn in matters of concern to them that they would like to have addressed in perhaps a deeper way. And then we took that list of all those topics and we brought it down to eight for the first series of this year and then said, well, let's just jump into the deep end of the pool as we start 2023. And so that's what we've done. We started with the issue, is Christianity harmful? People are concerned about that these days. If I open that Bible, if I follow Jesus, won't I just become a bigot that creates hurt and heartache for others? So we dealt with that first issue. Secondly, how would Jesus respond to racism? Challenging issue of our day. Third, what is it, what's so special about being human? And we had a guest scholar from Oxford help us address that one. And then last week we looked at some of the creation care concerns and stewarding the resources of the world in which we live. And today, this is a tough topic. If you're a guest with us today, first-time guest, we're so glad you're here. But I'm telling you, we're not the kind of church that dodges tough topics. And today's question is, how would Jesus respond to abortion? I mean, this literally is a matter of life and death question. This isn't simply a political controversy from where I sit. It usually involves, I've, I've just started my 30th year as pastor here. We haven't completed it. I just started it. But from where I sit, uh, I'm so glad you're doing that. I'm very glad you're doing that rather than saying, and there's the exit, pastor. So, you know, I appreciate that. And um, so invite somebody else to come and, and then we'll keep celebrating. But from where I sit as pastor, this issue usually involves some level of personal tragedy. They don't always get reported, but there's relational abandonment, there's some kind of disappointment, there are unfulfilled longings, there's economic hardship, there's emotional heartache, there perhaps may be some level of immaturity involved, there's ethical and moral confusion and contradiction, there's a sense of spiritual loss. We so seldom hear about that when you talk about this matter, but I'm telling you, from where I sit, there's so much pain in so many ways for so many people. But I want to start with some facts. That's my pastoral observation, but here are some facts. Pew Research reports that from the years 1973 to 2022, from the time the United States Supreme Court first established Roe versus Wade to the time that the United States Supreme Court overturned that establishment, a total of 63 million total abortions have been reported. Now, let's put that in context. Compare that with lives lost in World War II and the Holocaust that we hear so much about. 11 million lives lost in the Holocaust. 6 million Jews, 5 million non-Jews. And when it comes to abortion, lives taken off their lifeline, 63 
million. That totals more than all of our country's war dead from all of our country's wars combined. So statistics are telling us <laughs> that this issue is an issue. Statistics also tell us, because you've heard reports on natural disasters, right? Floods, fire, climate events, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, all of those that conventional wisdom calls those acts of God because they are believed to be beyond human control. Total lives lost through natural disasters per year, 60,000. 60,000. You would have, do the math, you, it would take over a century, 105 years to catch up with the abortion totals during that last 50 years that I just talked about. That's a fact. So it's not hard to see that this is a high impact issue. How are we to respond? Well, maybe you've wondered. Maybe you have wondered. Or maybe your mind's already made up, you know? It's like, hey, I, I got this one. Or maybe today you're truly listening for a friend because you knew when this was going to come in the order of sequence and you are, would like to find some answers that maybe you could respond to a friend. Or maybe, you know what, maybe you got a personal history here. This is not a hypothetical issue for you. I mean, it has touched your life. You bear a mark on your soul, whether you've talked to anybody about it, whether you've told anybody about it, whether you even like to talk about it yourself, you're feeling uncomfortable right now because of the topic. But I'm telling you, the question is, then how are we to respond? Actually, the question is this. How does Jesus respond to abortion? Which raises a whole other question. How are we going to know that? Right? When there's no place in the Gospels where Jesus directly models how to do that, how would you do that? If you were me, and this was the challenge and charge today, if you, if you look for the word abortion in the Bible, in your concordance, it's not in there. Abortion as we know it wasn't practiced in Bible times. And so the Bible never specifically mentions abortion by name. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't see in the life and ministry of Jesus principles and practices that can help us here. The Bible worldview, that perspective that Jesus practiced in his life and ministry was shaped from the laws of Moses and then from the writings of the prophets and then the inspired poems of that poetic literature in the Psalms. So um, it even though it doesn't mention abortion by name, the Bible does give clear perspective on other matters to be considered in moral decision-making of this nature. Like what? Like what? Well, like the value of human life. Here's the principle number one. Life is God's gift to us. God's gracious gift. Life, and as such, is to be respected, is to be cherished. Why? Because we don't make ourselves. God is creator of human life. And human life is God's gift to us with the special distinction of being image bearers of God. We're asking, how would Jesus think about this? This is his perspective. 
He would see every human being as an image bearer of Almighty God. And then what God, and so the scripture tells us, barely get into the first chapter of the book, it says that God created us, male and female, and in his image, God created us. So this is Jesus' viewpoint. He, Jesus quotes this, actually. So life is God's gift to us. And then what the Bible says is that God immediately tells the image bearers to go multiply, reproduce, fill the earth with more image bearers after the image of God. And so the Hebrew bias was for life, l'chaim. And Jesus taught this. He said, male and female, one flesh marriage is God's design to bring more image bearers into life. Principle number two, human life is, co is connectional not radically individual. We don't hear this a lot. But the radical individualism so popular in our culture right now is not God's design for life, for man or for woman or for children or for culture. Genesis 2.18 says God, God quoted, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Part of what that means is that life is best when we're connected to each other, that, that life comes from lives connecting to one another in the fidelity of love, and then life grows from lives growing in responsibility together. This is Jesus' viewpoint that I'm gathering from that I would share with you for making your own decision about this matter. But connection is the key, not individualism. Radical individualism hurts us. Staying connected helps us. And this is a part of the biblical worldview. So what does that mean? That means that instead of going in with radical individual rights, the right of an unborn life to be born, an absolute individual right, or the right of a woman to her own body, an absolute individual right, rather than, the Bible doesn't start there. The Bible says, no, we're connected. We're in this together. Life is God's good creation. You don't do that without God's involvement. And humans partner with God in connecting to let it happen. And then, so as a result, those of us who follow Christ, that's our desire today, is to find and follow Jesus, even in this matter, is that we say the value of every human life matters. A mother's life, a father's life, a child's life, a preborn life, husband and wife connecting as one flesh to have more image-bearing babies together is God's gracious design for our future. And that's what Jesus affirms in Matthew 19. We'll talk about it a little bit more a little bit later. But Paul also affirms that in one of the first letters he wrote, 1 Corinthians 11, 11. Listen to this. Woman is not independent of man. I hope that doesn't upset you. But listen, guys, man is not independent of woman. That's what he's saying. We're connected. We, we do life together. That human life is connectional. So human life comes from human lives. But it takes more than simply two human lives. It takes three lives of image. The image who's who, whom we bear from God and then male and female image bearers. It takes three to conceive 
human life. It's woman's privilege to bear life. It's man's privilege to share life in connecting personally in conception and then in provision. But then it, by God's design, God is involved in multiplying his image through human reproduction in life. So the Bible that Jesus read claimed human connections are graced by God's connection in the womb. They're profound. The connection with God who gives life inside the womb and then with others who share life outside the womb and affirm it from there. So God is at work in the womb. Here we turn to the Psalm of David, 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Then from the inspired poem, we would go to the the book of Jeremiah where God is quoted. Jeremiah remembers and he says, uh, God says, before I formed you in the womb, wouldn't it happen without me? I formed you in the womb. I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. So God's plan already coming to fruition. This was, would have been Jesus' viewpoint. Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, which we see fulfilled in the life of Jesus, our Messiah. Verse 10 says this, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. That's a declaration of faith before the first breath was taken. Luke 141, when Elizabeth heard Virgin Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb Verse 15 tells us that the baby in her womb was filled with the Spirit before he was born. That was talking about John the Baptist in Elizabeth's belly, (laughs) filled with the Spirit. So when Mary walks up and she's expecting and is about to announce, then Elizabeth already knows. And so is the connection from her womb. So we're connected. That's the point there. God is the gracious giver of life. He involves us in it through our connection, a connection with him, a connection with one another, that we are meant to live connected, not simply in radical individual rights. Third principle, what about rights? Well, God wants humans to guard life with justice. So when it comes to justice, that's where rights are involved. God's word speaks to the value of the powerless, One of the earliest stories that would connect in this story is Egypt wanted all of the Hebrew babies, the baby boys, killed, remember? And uh, the Hebrew midwives instead were allowing them all to live. And so in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, when they're asked, "Why, why all these babies? Why are you letting all these babies live? They say this, well, these Hebrew women, I'm telling you, they're not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous, and they give birth before we even show up. Well, the Christian women of the early church weren't like the Roman women of the pagan Roman Empire either. In their day, infanticide was practiced widely. In the Roman Empire, people would literally abandon their newborns on dung heaps and on garbage dumps of the cities. And in response, Christian women were going out and rescuing these little babies and adopting them and taking them as their own children. 
Jesus said. I'm wondering if they were wondering about Jesus' quote, because here's where Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't prohibit them. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Matthew 19, 14. In Matthew 18, 10, Jesus said this, see that you don't despise even one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. N.T. Wright is um, an esteemed New Testament scholar of our day. He says that the guardian angels of children that Jesus mentions here, they're the only beings in the entire Bible who see the face of God. The reason I'm telling you that is because it's a testimony to me that God values the powerless. It's an act of justice that God is saying, I'm going to got my eyes on them with an angel for them, that God values the powerless. Now, when it comes to power, when it comes to power, God's word speaks to the duty of those who have power to use it for the benefit of others. We find that regularly through Scripture. Proverbs 31 is one of the places. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute, Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. What does that mean? That means that women's rights matter. Who have been devalued and poor and unesteemed. It says those who are destitute, poor and needy. Women's rights matter. It means that image bearers of God Human beings, their rights matter. See that? In connection as humans. This is a biblical position. And then you'll see it stated very clearly, God's justice for the powerless. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17. God opposes the spilling of innocent blood. Justice seeks to protect, not penalize the innocent. So there are some of the principles at work. Now, our Southern Baptist heritage in this church family historically recognized this issue as a complicated one with complex layers and drop-downs under it, moral considerations to be considered. In the first resolution of the Southern Baptist Convention, passed two years before Roe versus Wade received a Supreme Court decision, Back in 1973, they said this, though the convention never supported the right of a woman to have an abortion at her request for any reason, it affirmed the application of abortion to protect those who cannot protect themselves and included its possible use in cases of rape, incest, severe fetal deformity, and damage to the emotional, mental, physical health of the mother. So one, that all I'm saying is these are some of the, the, that factual background that says there's a moral complicated issue going on here. And when Jesus doesn't speak to it specifically, then how are we given opportunity to weigh in? And so applying principles and then coming to a statement of understanding, trying to anyway, is part of our history in this. Now there's one more principle that needs to be mentioned. Jesus highlighted the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear him mention that? The kingdom of heaven, their angels in heaven, the Father in heaven. In Jesus' viewpoint, this doesn't happen as a flatland event. 
An image bearer of God is intended for a future that is vertical, a heaven experience, the reality beyond this life. There is more to life than this life. We are more than material beings. Human beings are created for eternal life. This is a part of Jesus' viewpoint, a quality of life for fulfillment that never ends. Human beings are created for eternal life. And then that eternal life becomes more wonderfully fulfilled and complete in God's presence because God is the giver of life. We're made in God's image for life. And so God wants us to have it here and forevermore. This was a part of Jesus' thinking. And the, but the attainment of that life and you remember what Jesus talked about, the quality of eternal life. That kind of life doesn't come through self-indulgence. The quality of that kind of life doesn't come through self-centered self-determination. Jesus said it's when you lose yourself that you find yourself. Jesus said it's when you take up your cross and you follow me. That through a quality of love that lives through sacrifice. And then he modeled that. The quality of love, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, that never fails, even when it may appear to be failing. But this is what Jesus modeled. Jesus taught that we should choose love and choose life over convenience and over self. That's a principle of the kingdom of heaven. Now, all this being said, John 1 brings me to my final brick that I'd like to put in the foundation here where John says Jesus arriving showed us the glory of the Father in his own life and, and ministry, the one and only Son coming from the Father full of grace and truth. So how would Jesus respond to abortion? Well, he probably wouldn't say, let's vote on it and go with the majority. Think? He probably wouldn't do that. He probably wouldn't use blame and shame against women or against men or against children. You know, that Jesus just didn't do that. It's not how he treated women. It's not how he treated men. It's not how he treated children. This wasn't Jesus' way. So I believe, and of course, I could be wrong about this, you know. You got to make your own decision about this. I'm just putting some tools on the table that you can build from. But how would Jesus do it? I think Jesus would, uh, would show up full of grace and truth. What does that mean? Well, guys, I think part of it might be that he would show up with some truth for men and that he would challenge men to step up and to step into responsibility, to stop using women for sex, to stop excusing yourself from fatherhood, and instead use your power, you have power, to honor women, tame your desire, and respect life by being responsible sexually. Grace and truth. Yeah. The women are clapping. Okay, ladies. <laughs> Jesus would bring some truth to you too, wouldn't he? Je yeah, we want Jesus to bring grace, but we're light on the truth, you know. But Jesus would say, go and sin no more. Wouldn't he say that? That's what he said to the woman that he caught in compromise in a hard place. And he said, no one, I'm not here to condemn you. But go and sin no more. There's a better future. There's a better way. 
There's another offer that you may not be aware of yet. To leave your past, to step into a new future. There's a love that is not going to leave you, but will stay committed to you, that will forgive you and show you the way forward. This is Jesus' way. And I'm telling you, Jesus' way of saving, Jesus is far better at saving than we are at sinning. Can I get an amen on that? Jesus is far better at saving than we are at sinning. And we're pretty good at sinning. Two women were sitting in my office last month. Uh, one was so very excited, the other had a kind of peaceful calm on her face. They had participated recently in a special retreat, and they wanted to connect with me as their pastor to let me know what, uh, what was happening to them. And the one, the excited lady, was she could hardly contain herself. I mean, just, she said, it was life-changing, Pastor Bill. And I could just feel this raw joy rising from pouring out of her soul, in her eyes, the, her words, the pain I have suffered for so many years is gone. I mean, she was like full on. And then she said this, my mom did an abortion 60 years ago. She still cries about it today. And then talking about herself in the second person, she said, when you get an abortion, you not only abort your child, you abort your heart and your feelings too. That's what happened to me. That's a direct quote. That's what happened to me. I wouldn't be telling you their stories if they didn't give me permission. She'd already had one child when she found out that she was pregnant. And then her doctor told her that there were some serious health risks and possible abnormalities in the baby that would make abortion advisable. And so she said her husband didn't support her keeping the baby, neither did her mother. She said, I wasn't a believer at the time. I knew about God, I knew about Jesus, but I didn't have a personal relationship with him. So I decided to end the pregnancy. The other lady, the one with peace, calm on her face, she also told me some of her story. She said she talked about the, the release that she felt as she exposed what had sat in darkness for so long, this culture of silence, she called it. She got pregnant at 18 from sex with her boyfriend. She was living with her father after her parents' divorce, but fear of being rejected and disappointing her father kept her from telling him. She said, at the time, I thought how everyone would judge me for getting pregnant so young and unmarried. My dreams, my future plans would, would be shattered. Selfishly, she said, my plans didn't include being a mother at such a young age. No one forced me to have an abortion. My boyfriend would have accepted the birth of the child, but he was supportive of my decision and paid to terminate the pregnancy. I told two people at the time in my life, but no one encouraged me to keep the child. Just the simple words, you don't have to do this, may have stopped me. I wish they had. Now, these two women, I said, they had just returned from a retreat that was designed to bring healing to the abortion wound. That's what they called it. They both told me that how for years they had struggled with the aftermath of their decision and with what they called wounds of abortion. Their feelings, this, this internal soul struggle that they had experienced, didn't know how to give 
voice to, their numbness. They're not knowing how to handle the long-term emotional and spiritual consequences that had come to them over the years that they were having. The guilt, the shame, the self-condemnation, the difficulty of being vulnerable, of being open in relationships, the way that they feel when they would look at a child and the thought and the memory and then how it affected their, their intimacy. So they were in my office. This is what they said. They were in my office to tell me not only about their personal journey and some of this breakthrough that they were experiencing that was freeing their heart, but they also wanted to tell me so that I could tell you. And, and that I might be able to offer some encourage to other women who maybe you are where they were and would like to find healing and new hope if that's possible. If that's you, then I want to promise you in great confidentiality that if you want to contact me, then I'll get you to these sisters and get the information that they have to you. And then you can see what your next steps might be as well. Um, I, I don't know what you expected when you found out what this message would be about. But I believe Jesus' response to abortion would most likely meet us at the wound. That Jesus, this is where Jesus met the woman at the well, at the wound. This woman was hurting. She'd had five failed marriages where at the time she would have been thrown away and treated as nothing. And so now, perhaps out of that hurt, she's living with a guy unmarried because who wants to get divorced again? Jesus meets her at a well. When Jesus brings this up, she tries to change the subject. Well, we know why. It hurts. I want to talk about that. And so she tries to dodge the subject and, and uh, tries to create a diversion. And then that diversion, she actually turns it into an argument. I mean, the, you could feel the heat rising and the volume going up, and she's hoping that he'll get with it, and he, he doesn't take the dodge. Instead, he just pursues her heart with a quality of love that is determined to meet her at the wound. And then lead her to a new way of facing it. Without dodging it, without hiding from it, without burying it, without running from it. Without living in guilt or shame about it. He doesn't go there. But he leads to freedom. It's amazing. John 4, if you want to read it for yourself. Then there's Thomas the disciple. You know, Thomas was wounded. He had a deeply wounded faith. We hear about Thomas. Oh, Thomas the doubter. And then we kind of... Right? But I think Thomas was doubting because he was hurting. What do guys do when they hurt? They don't want to talk about it. The other disciples show up, in fact, and they say, Oh, Jesus is alive. Thomas hadn't been around. He wasn't there when Jesus showed up. You know why? Because you don't go to church when you've been hurt. Especially when your small group was part of it. And he got hurt deeply. And the leader of the group... He felt devastated. Does he want one more of those disappointments? He knows how hard this one was to handle. And so he tells him, no, I will not be coming back to group. 
In fact, unless I see him with my own eyes and I put my fingers in his hand and I can touch his wound in his side, I'm not coming back. That's the story. You know that story? The next week, Jesus finds Thomas. And he says to him, put your finger right here. He says, give me your hand. Here, put it right here. What did that feel like? <laughs> right? Put it in my side. I think he looked that man in the eye. He says, stop doubting. Believe. In other words, you're not stuck. I got to show you how to get out into new spacious places. Jesus was meeting him at the wound. The wound of his broken heart. The wound of his broken faith. And now his wound is being covered by Jesus' wound in his broken body, finding heal. Jesus was meeting him at the wound with healing and hope. And I'm supposed to tell you that he can do it for you. He can do it for us. He can do it in this issue, but I'm telling you, it, maybe this isn't your issue today. Where are you hurting? Where are you hiding? Where are things causing you to want to harden up? And say, oh no, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that because I know how much it hurts. But you don't even say that out loud because it hurts too much to talk about. And Jesus, can Jesus meet you at the wound today? Maybe that's what this whole talk is about that you're bearing some kind of wound. You're bearing it and you're trying to bury it and Jesus is saying that's not the way forward. He can do it for you and he can do it with an issue as tough and tender as this one. So may I make a cultural observation before we head for prayer? <coughs> um, and of course, I could be wrong about this. But my cultural observation is that we approach this, the media, the, the powers that be, <clears throat> when it comes to this issue, we approach it with absolutism. What does that mean? That means believing that a woman's right to her body is absolute and the ultimate good to be pursued. It's the absolute. And then swing on the other side of the aisle on this one and it's like, no, no, no. It's the unborn's life that is ultimate and must be treated as the absolute good. And here's my observation, that the power struggle over rights for the absolute between absolutes is never going to find resolution. I believe Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, full of grace and truth is trying to say, here's another way. Let me meet you at the wound. Would you be willing to do that today? Maybe not this wound, but maybe it is this wound. Maybe it is this issue. What if you were to ask Jesus to do that with you right now, to show you where whatever's hurting is giving you reason to get hard, and it's taken some life from you? Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to let him speak truth and bring grace to you? Then you can make that your prayer right now. What fear, where are fear and anger making decisions instead of grace and truth? Would you be open if Jesus wanted to show you? 
and then invite him. What if you were to present your perspective? You're already settled on this one. You know where you stand. What if you were to bring that perspective and say, Jesus, you got anything for me here? That you could guide my understanding into a different future than where I've been living? To allow him to be the absolute in your life. Bring your wound, bring your experience. Maybe believe, no, it's my body, it's my choice, period. Would you be willing to invite Jesus to meet you there? Maybe you've been floating alone on this one. Would you be willing to let Jesus show you how connection could work? Or whatever's making you mad right now about what I'm saying, would you be willing to say, what am I mad about, Jesus? Is there a way beyond anger that could lead to grace and truth for me? Is there another way? You know, my mother had complications in her pregnancy and my delivery. I was extremely premature. Uh, She was going into convulsions. The doctor came out to my dad and said, which one do you want me to save? Pick. So you know what he did? He called his mother, and she got on the prayer chain with all the praying women at her church. Here I am. And I talked to my mom yesterday. So I'm just saying, maybe the Lord isn't trying to limit your life, but he wants to show you another answer in the midst of it that involves connecting with him and with those you love that's a step beyond individual rights into what Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will never turn away. Is that where he'd like to meet you today? Pray with me. Gracious God, we invite you to speak truth to us, to show grace to us. We're so grateful, Lord Jesus, for your spirit to be our counselor and our comforter in this. And I'm praying for sisters who are telling you their story right now. You already know it, but they're welcoming you into it. And so we pray that the healing of your truth would find them. I'm praying for brothers who have tried to wash their hands of it and left an image bearer of yours in the breach. Oh, my Lord. And you're trying to talk to us about it. If that's you, brother, if that's you, sister, would you welcome Jesus to meet you at the wound? Because he doesn't want to make it hurt. He wants to bring healing. And perhaps for you, you're like the woman who said, you know, I knew about God, I knew about Jesus, but I didn't have a relationship with him. And yet today, Jesus would like for you to start that. And you can begin your relationship by inviting him to come into your life right now. Lord Jesus, I believe you love me. I believe that you are so much better at saving than I am at sinning. That your cross covers all of my sins and I can be completely washed clean. So wash me by your grace. And then the truth of your resurrection, your spirit can come alive in me. So come alive in me, come into my life. Forgive my sin and now lead me to turn from my way of self and to your way 
of life. Now, if you just prayed that prayer with me and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith, I'm going to invite you to lift your hand just for a moment. Keep it up long enough that I can try to find you. To my left, I'm seeing two hands shoot up right away. God bless you. Toward the front, toward the back, here in the middle, in the, in the center, toward the middle. God bless you. Amen. Lord, for every person who by uplifted hand is saying, my heart is open, you're welcome to meet me and bring healing and hope to me as my Savior. May they sense your peace and know your freedom as we make our prayer in your name, Jesus. Amen.